Hey, Rarecast listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new program from Global Genes called Data DIY. Access to data is essential for advancing the understanding and treatment of rare diseases. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is to be as savvy about data as researchers and clinicians. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to become empowered data owners and stewards. If you'd like to learn more about the program, attend an upcoming Data DIY workshop, or view resources, go to globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Last month, Deep Genomics garnered headlines when it declared that it had nominated the industry's first artificial intelligence-discovered therapeutic candidate. The experimental therapy is intended to treat Wilson disease, a rare and potentially life-threatening condition. The target for the therapy was also identified by the company's AI platform, and Deep Genomics said it was able to identify the target and drug candidate in less than 18 months. We spoke to Brendan Frey, founder and CEO of Deep Genomics, about the company's AI platform, why it's focused on genetic disease, and the case for the company's approach to drug discovery. Brendan, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here today. We're going to talk about Wilson disease, deep genomics, and the company's advancing of what you're hailing as the first artificial intelligence identified target and drug candidate. Let's start with Wilson disease, though. What is it? How does it manifest itself? And how does it progress? Wilson disease is a horrible disorder, and people uh, suffering from it, uh, if, if left untreated, ultimately can be fatal. And the disorder is really caused by a mutation in a gene called ATP7B, and that gene is really crucial for uh, making sure that copper is shuttled around the body correctly. And this mutation, what it results in is copper accumulating in, in regions of the body where it shouldn't accumulate and then also not being properly shuttled around. Uh, and so the, the golden rings in the eyes are one of the symptoms but the more severe symptoms uh, involve a variety of organs and ultimately uh, scarring of the liver and, and in liver failure. The, um, the, the other kinds of symptoms are neurological decline as well as uh, uh, symptoms having to do with inability to walk. And so these are quite significant, and, and uh, currently the standard of care for Wilson disease is uh, zinc salts and chelators, the uh, chelators essentially absorb the copper out of the out of the body. Uh, the zinc salts prevent the copper from being absorbed, and so in the in the stomach, they, the zinc binds to the copper, prevents the copper from being absorbed. Uh, with both of these uh, treatments, the the issue is that 
they're not fixing the root cause of the problem. The root cause, as I mentioned, is a mutation in this gene ATP7B. And so even though these uh, these chelators and zinc salts uh, do get copper out of the system, they, they're not ensuring that the copper is delivered to where it should be delivered. And and as I mentioned, it, they're not fixing the, the root cause of the disease, which is this, this mutation in ATP7B. Wilson disease has been a bit of a, a looser for researchers in terms of understanding the genetic mechanism underlying the disease. Why has it been so challenging, and how well understood is the condition? So the condition itself is well understood, and the, the fact that mutations in this gene ATP7B uh, lead to Wilson disease, that's well understood. Uh, what has not been well understood is all of the different mutations that can lead to the disease and, and how those work. And so, for example, the, the particular mutation that we focused on at Deep Genomics, it's called MET645ARG, and that mutation has stumped researchers for almost two decades. And what's interesting about that mutation is that our AI system, our artificial intelligence system, figured out how that mutation leads to the disease and directed our company, Deep Genomics, towards uh, validating that prediction in the in the wet lab and in different types of cells, and then also in very rapidly coming up with a drug candidate to remediate that particular problem. Why Wilson disease? How did you come to pursue that? That's a good question. So at, at Deep Genomics, we built an artificial intelligence system that can ascertain a variety of different aspects of how to treat uh, rare disorders. And so the, the AI system scanned over 2,400 rare disorders and over 120,000 pathogenic mutations when searching for a good drug program, if you like. And the, the AI system looks for a variety of different characteristics of what that drug program would, would be characterized by. Uh, so first of all, for a given mutation and a given rare disorder, uh, can the AI system understand how the mutation leads to the disease? Uh, second of all, is there a mechanism of remediation? And so the mutation causes something to go wrong. Is there a way that uh, the cells can be set, set back on track, fixed up? And third, the AI system then also designs a set of compounds so in the case of this Wilson disease mutation, the AI system designed several dozen different uh, chemicals, different compounds that it ascertained should be able to fix the problem. Uh, the AI system also assesses each of those compounds in terms of its potency as a drug and then also in terms of toxicity. Will that compound be more or less likely to, to lead to, for example, an immune system response? Uh, the AI system also predicts ahead of time how easy is it, it would be to develop a, a program for that indication. Uh, so, for example, is the clinical endpoint straightforward or is the clinical endpoint complicated? Uh, a blood level readout versus, say, a neuropsychiatric exam. And so, right up front, before we've done any work on the drug program, our AI system assesses about 150 different characteristics and that's what allows us to isolate and dive into the best programs right off the bat. And so this Wilson program is what 
at the top of the list of the, the output of the artificial intelligence system. I think in drug development today, AI has become a, a very generic term, but when you look at the way different companies are using it, there can be great variance. What data is your AI system drawing from? Yeah, I think you, you brought up two points. One is there's quite a bit of variability in how AI is used. And then the second one is, is how, are, how are our AI systems built? And regarding the first one, I think uh, a good way to, to consider how AI can help drug discovery and development is, is what is AI good at? And, and artificial intelligence, of course, is, is uh, all about computers doing things, and computers are good at doing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, if you have a one-off project, just a single thing you're trying to do, it may be that humans are, are best suited to the job. Uh, so now when you think about what it is we want to do over and over and over again, rare disease is a really good match to the needs within drug development. So rare disease, as probably many of your listeners know, uh, there are expected to be up to 7,000 rare diseases, uh, hundreds of thousands of different mutations that can lead to those diseases. Uh, and so for, for a particular disease, it's not just one mutation in a gene, but there might be a handful of mutations or a dozen mutations that can lead to that disease. Uh, Wilson disease is an example of that, and, and other examples would be, say, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And, and so when you look at rare diseases, first of all, the very large number of, of disorders. Second of all, a very large number of mutations that could lead to those disorders. And so it's just not possible for humans to look through each and every one of those mutations by hand to figure out how they work and whether they can be corrected. So that's why artificial intelligence is really a crucial technology for drug discovery and development in the area of rare disease. So that's the answer to your first question. And the second question is, is uh, how are our models trained? Um, we have about 22 different machine learning predictors that's that are part of our artificial intelligence system, and the, and the number of those predictors is growing. Uh, they're trained using a variety of different data sets, uh, over, over a dozen different types of data sets, and for each of those data sets, there would be many, many different versions of the data. The data has to be carefully engineered so that we can properly build uh, a machine learning system that is capable of accurate prediction. Uh, an example of the kind of data we use would be genome sequences, and so just the, the reference genome, of course, but then other genome sequences as well. So genome sequences containing patient mutations would be part of that. Another kind of data we use would be RNA-seq, which is data that measures concentrations of mRNA molecules in, in cells. And so what happens when a gene is expressed is, is first the gene is transcribed into RNA, then the RNA is spliced and put together into mRNA, and that's translated to protein, and protein is crucial for building cells and signaling between cells and, and many other cellular processes. So another type of data set that we use is, is this RNA-seq data, which measures the concentrations of mRNA molecules. Uh, but but there, there are dozens of different types of data sets that we use at Epigenomics to build these machine learning predictors. And to what extent are you using public data versus proprietary data? We use both. 
some of our data is proprietary and generated internally, and some of it is, is publicly available. Over the past 12 or 13 years, there's been an exponential growth in the amount of genome biology data that's publicly available, which is, which is truly amazing and also truly important for rare disease drug development. Uh, since rare disease is all about genetic mutations, this, this publicly available genome biology data is a crucial resource. But since 2006, the amount of that data has, has increased by 2.2-fold every year, so growing very, very rapidly. Uh, now, now, those data sets are publicly available, but the question is, how do you take those data sets and turn them into a data set that's useful for machine learning? Machine learning requires data that's very carefully formulated so that a useful machine learning predictor can be built. You can't just throw data into a machine learning algorithm and hope for the best. It's really important to carefully engineer the data sets. And so a lot of our effort at Deep Genomics goes into taking that raw data that's publicly available and converting it to a, a form that's, that's useful for building these machine learning predictors and these AI systems. You're focusing on antisense oligonucleotides. What's the rationale for focusing on those? I, the team and I spent quite a bit of time deciding what the best therapeutic modality would be. And it, in, in so far as rare genetic disorders go, these are genetic, and so genetic medicine makes sense. Examples of genetic medicines would be oligonucleotide therapies, uh, gene therapies, and uh, gene editing, as well as RNA editing. And all of these types of therapies have the characteristic that once you've identified a genetic target, so at the genetic level, what mutation needs to be fixed, then you can start to envision developing a therapy to address that genetic target. When we looked at these different types of therapies, we chose oligos because they have a 30-year history of a lot of, of high-quality research and development in terms of sorting out the chemistry, ensuring these molecules could be delivered efficiently to the right cells, ensuring that these molecules are stable and resistant to degradation within cells. All of these properties, which are called drug-like properties, are, are crucial for developing effective therapies. Uh, if you look at some of the more recent entries, such as uh, gene editing, gene therapies, they have some issues in, in respect to uh, delivery and with respect to being able to effectively correct a genetic problem. And so, for example, gene therapies have worked out really well in some cases, but in other cases where the gene is very long, it can be difficult to develop a gene therapy where you can replace that entire gene. Uh, with respect to uh, gene editing, uh, delivery is an issue as well as, as, well as other aspects. Um, but the, the key problem in, for many drugs is, is the delivery problem, and for the programs that we're pursuing at Deep Genomics, the delivery problem is largely solved. Your system tests uh, up to 69 billion ASOs against 1 million target sites in, in silico. What's the rationale for using all these different targets as opposed to starting with a validated target? That's a good question. In the field of rare disease, we're looking at a situation where there's a large universe of potential targets where a target is defined as a mutation. 
And really, that universe is mostly unknown. And so there are some good examples, like for Duchenne muscular dystrophy or spinal muscular atrophy, where the target at the mutation level has been known for some time, and the way to remediate the target has been successfully pursued. Spinal muscular atrophy is a great example. But if you look at the larger space of rare disease, the 7,000 diseases I mentioned before, and the hundreds of thousands of mutations, the space of possible mutations and the ways in which those mutations can be remediated is very large and very unexplored. And so that's why we need technology that allows us to survey that space, examine it, and find out what's going on, look for the good opportunities for developing drugs. How long does it take to move from target to a clinical-ready candidate? What's the the preclinical work that gets done to validate and, and optimize a candidate? So if you look at what's being done for the most part in industry, companies tend to go after the same targets. And so if you look at the pipelines of different oligonucleotide companies, for example, you'll see a lot of the targets, the same targets showing up. And our approach, as I've described, is quite different. Our approach is survey the, the vast space of possible drug targets and, and identify brand new opportunities. So an interesting question is how to go from a, a, a novel drug target so not an established drug target, but how to go from a novel drug target to a declared candidate quickly. And we were able to do it in 18 months with Wilson disease, which is truly incredible. And if you, if you think about the timeline, we started with a, a mutation where human researchers had not figured out how that mutation works. And the very first step, which occurred in January of 2018, is that our AI system predicted how that mutation leads to the disease. And so right after that, we confirmed that prediction by conducting wet lab experiments. Uh, the AI system also identified a way of remediating the problem and output a set of candidate uh, compounds that could be used as drug candidates. And then we set about validating those as well. And by Q2 of 2019, roughly, we had identified uh, 12, uh, 12 drug candidates, so 12 12. Uh, by, 2000, by Q2 of 2019, we had identified 12 lead candidates. Uh, the next step was to also assess those for toxicity, and our machine learning system was able to predict uh, in vitro toxicity characteristics of those leads. And when we took those into in vitro experiments, we were able to confirm that all 12 had good properties, and then we conducted mice experiments. Uh, we conducted mouse experiments to, to check for... for uh, uh, tolerability. And that takes us to roughly three weeks ago when we were able to declare the candidates. Your platform technology can be used to develop therapies for a broad range of genetic diseases. How do you go about prioritizing what you're pursuing, or do you rely on the AI system to make interesting findings independent of indication? The AI does output a rich source of information for each potential program that allows us to decide how to prioritize the programs. Uh, one of the challenges for us going forward is that we have more programs than we can develop internally. And so we need to figure out a way, uh, as a community, we need to figure out a way how to continue to develop these programs to support the, the individual suffering from rare genetic disorders. And I think that will involve different types of activities. One of them is 
drug companies becoming better at developing drugs for rare disease. And that involves doing it quickly, as we've proven we can do, and also doing it with a high success rate. Uh, getting the drug developed quickly and with a high rate of success will bring costs down, which will, which will be crucial for the future of developing drugs for individuals suffering from rare disorders. Now, the second thing that I think needs to take place is that uh, those suffering from rare disorders need to organize themselves into clusters, whether it's a Facebook or a patient advocacy group or, or through conferences or other types of ways of connecting with one another. Those patients need to form themselves into clusters so they're more easily identified or, or identifiable by companies developing drugs for individuals suffering from rare disorders. And so I really think there's, there's two, two types of activities that are crucial here. One of them is patients organizing themselves uh, so that they can be more easily addressed um, by companies developing drugs for rare disorders. And then the other one is really from the company's perspective, getting, getting really good at developing drugs quickly for those patients in need. Your lead experimental therapy for Wilson disease is DG12P1. Can you, you explain how it works? Yeah, certainly. The mutation that this addresses is MET645ARG. This is a mutation in an exon, which is a missense mutation, so it changes the amino acid. And uh, human researchers have a strong bias towards thinking of such mutations as being pathogenic because they change the amino acid. And so a typical assumption is the amino acid is changed, and that will change some characteristic of the protein, and the protein will not fold correctly or, or something like that. Um, but it turns out there's a very large number of mutations that don't act in that fashion. The way they act is they change the regulatory code that's embedded in the genome. And the regulatory code is really the code that's responsible for directing and controlling what's going on within the cell when that gene is expressed. And so, for example, one part of the regulatory code is responsible for directing how genes are spliced. And so when a gene is first transcribed into RNA, it includes introns and exons. And there are features embedded in that sequence that direct the cell as to how it should remove the introns and glue the exons together, which then makes the sequence that is translated into protein. And so this particular mutation, it's a missense mutation, but it turns out, and this is what our AI system figured out, it turns out that the, the missense mutation is not the problem. The problem is that the mutation changes the regulatory code and causes the entire exon to be skipped. And this is what caused researchers to be confused for so long. So the prediction was the by human researchers that the mutation causes a missense, that causes a change in the amino acid, which causes the protein to be not functional. But when researchers dove into that and tried to test whether that was true, they were not able to show that was the case. So the protein was functional, even though this mutation uh, was present in the protein. So when our AI system predicted that, in fact, this mutation causes the exon to be skipped, we went into the wet lab and checked it and validated that, in fact, that is true. And so the question then was, how can the problem be fixed? The AI system predicted that a certain oligonucleotide therapy landed in a certain region of that transcript of that gene would promote increased inclusion of the exon. And by promoting increased inclusion of the exon, 
that would lead to a proper, properly functioning protein. And so that's how the drug works. It's, a drug, it's, a, it's an oligonucleotide therapy that binds to the mRNA and causes increase, or that binds to the pre-mRNA and causes increased inclusion of exon 6, which then uh, restores the properly functioning protein. And when do you expect to begin clinical testing? So the, after declaring the candidate, the next step will be to conduct IND-enabling studies. So that will be um, uh, tests in mice and in non-human primates uh, to check for safety and also biodistribution of the molecule. And then we expect to file for an IND in the first quarter of 2021 and begin the clinical trial in that same quarter. I think there's still a fair bit of skepticism about AI and drug development, particularly among old-school drug developers. What's the case for this approach, and what do you think it will take to validate it? I think the, the validation of any kind of a system that is supposed to be good at doing something over and over again is in the output of the system. So simply asking how many good drug programs, in this case, are produced by the AI system. I think, I think that's the right way to answer that question. Um, we know that human drug developers have a, a certain level of performance in that sense. If you ask how many launched drug programs end up in a new drug approval, uh, the, the, the number is somewhere around 1%. If you ask how many, how many validated targets lead to a new drug approval, it's usually around something like 5%. That's the, the industry number. So we know how well humans are doing, human drug developers are doing, at making those choices. Uh, and so I think the, the best way to assess whether these AI systems actually work is to, is to ask the same question for them. Uh, since AI has only recently been used in the field of drug discovery and development, it's too early to, to measure the performance of AI systems in terms of new drug approvals. But... Um, what we can do is look at the intermediate. So for deep genomics, we can say, for how many uh, newly launched programs do we obtain a, a declared candidate? And for us, the, the ratio is about 70%. So for 70% of, of new programs, we obtain a, a declared candidate. Uh, the industry standard is around 15%. And so I think that's a valid comparison to make. Brendan Frey, founder and CEO of Deep Genomics. Brendan, thanks so much for your time today. You bet. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.